Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Predetermined, a pro wrestling hangout. I'm your host, Garrett Callender, and what are we doing? Derek isn't here. I feel lost. I feel broken. I'm joined by... <laughs> I'm joined by my good buddy, John Veron. Did I say your name right? Not even remotely, no. Um, it's, so here's the thing. You said your name out loud to me moments ago, and I thought, okay, keep it in here, because I never say your last name right. And I, It's so weird. Like, when I go home to Louisiana, no problems. Everybody gets it. The only thing is I get kind of a Frenchy version of it sometimes. Because it's, I'll, I'll tell you, it's Veron, as in, holy shit, there's a bear on the hood of the car, just with a V instead. Or turn the air on, it's hot in here. Like, there's any number of mnemonics I can give you. But when I go home, sometimes there's like a Frenchy version of it where it's like, it's Veron. Um, and I like that. But uh, out here, everybody's like, Veron, Veron, whatever. Like, when I briefly flirted with stand up comedy uh, to my peril, I um I just went by John Vernon because I just didn't want to fuck with that. Like trying to explain an open mic host what your last name is, you know, you know that 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 road only has calamity at the end of it. And John Vernon sounds like a great guy. Yeah, no, John Vernon sounds like he's gonna sell you insurance. Like John Vernon lives in Indiana. He's got a wife named Joyce. <laughs> um, Joyce has varicose veins. <laughs> She does. You know what? She's getting by. She's in a mall walking club. <laughs> um, uh, I was so, I'll be honest. I thought for probably, I have a lot of anxiety uh, about, no. really, about really small things. And also, of course, for, big things and medium-sized things. Really all the things. Yeah, I can, I can worry about goddamn near anything. But I spent about two hours wondering what, how to pronounce your last name and how I was going to introduce you. <laughs> You, un you have my phone number. You could have texted me at any time. I would have been happy to help. <laughs> when you've known someone nearly a decade, you have to know their name. You can't just ask. <laughs> no, no one knows my last name. It's, it's totally fine. I, I would have helped you. And if, if you have any questions about how to pronounce my wife's name or my dog's name or the city I live in's name, um, that's uh, Los Angeles, um, if you're curious. <laughs> um nibbler there you go yeah that is that is the dog um he 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 also accepts uh nibs uh commodore nibblesmith um or uh occasionally general whackingsworth because he he primarily communicates via whacking things with his paws um that's how you know his water bowl is empty because he whacks it and then you hear the whacking and you're like oh i gotta get the dog some water <laughs> um less no, he doesn't bark to communicate he just kind of whacks stuff but yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, long time, first time. Um, really big fan of the podcast. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to talk about wrestling or uh, wrestling adjacent topics um, as uh, they come up. Also, I didn't tell you before, but that uh, Carly Rae hoodie you're rocking is uh, is my whole heart. Um, she, yeah. Thank you. No, I, I, I also uh, have been feeling that emotion. It's, you know, it's not Christmas till somebody cries. <laughs> And see, I got, I have the Carly Rae Jepsen hoodie, the, the murder, death, kill hat. It all just, this is my personality in, in clothing. Absolutely. You've seen that clip of the little girl at the uh, Nick Gage match, right? Uh, like, freaking yes! out on him. And him being like, give me some, give me some. Because, and he gives her a little shove. Yeah, yeah, because Nick Gage is the coolest. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, he's uh, he, he makes me happy. Uh, he, the, there was a little clip of him going viral a couple of days ago about uh, him being in Japan with Necro Butcher um, and finding himself at a karaoke bar with Kenny Omega. <laughs> he was like, we were at this fucking karaoke bar in Tokyo, and this guy, I think his name's Kenny Omega, was hanging out. And uh, this is from a few years ago, I guess. And uh, he's like, and I turned to Necro, and he's like, this isn't how, and I said, like, this isn't how I want to party. I don't want to be at a fucking karaoke bar with Kenny Omega. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and then someone found a picture of that night, and sure enough, there's fucking Nick Gage hanging out in a hoodie um, while Kenny Omega belts whatever shit he's belting. Um, which like I'll I, be I get that they're both pro wrestlers, but that's one of the most win worlds collide things I've ever heard of. I'll be honest, I when you brought up Nick Gage, I was worried that this was gonna turn into an intervention because the podcast over the years really took a turn. It started out as uh, everybody kind of recommending matches and us kind of going on this pro wrestling journey. Yeah. But then I just hit a hard left into death matches, parked my car, got out, set up camp, <laughs> and really just lived in death match land for at least all of quarantine. Yeah, that's real bad. And uh, you should stop. Um, I mean, death matches are fine. They're not really my thing. Um, I think death matches for me often lack psychology. Um, and they don't really seem to tell much of a story. The, I mean, the good ones do, and I'm probably being overgeneralizing, and I'm, someone's going to light up your comments and say that John Varen guy is a real piece of shit because they're not going to respect me enough to pronounce my last name right. Um, <laughs> but, like, I do think that they, they just don't feel... They don't feel like anything but, like, okay, time to do the next crazy thing. Um, I think a really good example of a deathmatch style thing, and this isn't really deathmatchy, it was just sort of more hardcore, was uh, Moxley Kingston, I Quit at uh, Full Gear. Did you watch that? I did. Yeah, like that, that felt um, hardcore for sure, but also like I understood the story they were trying to tell the whole time, and I saw like the, the regret on Moxley's face that he was having to do this to his friend because his friend had, you know, become a huge piece of shit. Um, See, and when I watch Carlos Colon fight Mance Warner, just pull out a knife and just start carving his head up for different sides of the ring, I got the Friday the 13th part four out of that where you're trying. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Friday the 13th part six, which is an actual movie. Um... But like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly a thing you can watch. Like I've been there for some real good death matches. I, I've been on this podcast discussing, I was at the GCW David Arquette almost dies match and then sent you a recap from outside in my car. <laughs> um, like I, we cannot thank you enough for that. Yeah. Um, you could hear the PTSD on my face. Like I almost watched Dewey from Scream die tonight. <laughs> um, <laughs> like... What the hell is going on? <laughs> um, what was that room like when everybody left? Like, as, as everyone was filing out, was everybody concerned for David Arquette? Were they confused? Oh, we were We were quite concerned. Um, it was weird. Like, it was one of those things where in the moment, you don't really know what you just saw. Um, because, like, my memory of it is the finish was, you know, um, you got, uh, Gage behind, uh, Arquette, I think, and he's grinding the light tube into Arquette's forehead. 
and then I guess um, Arquette goes for a snapmare, um, and then the light tube slips and cuts his neck. And at that point, everything just kind of slowed down. Um, and if you guys go back and watch it, you can see me at ringside. I'm sitting by the sound booth looking real concerned in a Green Lantern shirt. And, uh, like, everything just kind of slowed down. And, like, Arquette, my memory is that Arquette, like, walked over and, like, got out of the ring. And basically was like, fuck this. And then something convinced him to get back in and finish it. Um, and then I think they just did a snapmare and went home. And then, like, uh, Arquette, I don't know how much of this was on the broadcast, but Arquette, like, walked out and then came back. There was, like, this, uh, there was this door in the very back of the room. Like, you had the ring, and then there was this staircase going up to, like, I guess backstage because the room we were in was a music venue. And Arquette disappeared back there, and then Gage started cutting a promo because he had to fucking do something. And then Arquette showed back up and like started shouting at him. And I couldn't hear what he, sh he was shouting, but he was still holding his neck, basically saying, I assume, why did you try to murder me? <laughs> um, because I don't think David understood what was going on. Um, but yeah, then the end, it ended like a wrestling show. Like everybody was out there selling merch. And I think I, I remember going up to Brody King and being like, hey, is Arquette okay? And he was like, I don't know. You want to buy a shirt? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and then I went and got in my car on York in uh, Highland Park and got out my phone and recorded a recap for you. You guys can go listen to it. It's in the podcast archives uh, somewhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can hear me just not being sure of what I saw. And then later I read that like Arquette thought he was going to die. <laughs> and my favorite part of the match, though, is before the light tubes come out, uh, Arquette was kind of selling on my side of the ring. And the thing about the ring for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, is like there was the, the ringside seats were all elevated. So like I was level with the ring apron. Like I could have stood up from my chair, taken a step forward and I would have been standing on the ring apron. Uh, so it was like the best seats for a wrestling show I've ever had by a lot. Um, and so Arquette's selling like right in front of me. Um, and then people start bringing out the light tubes. And I said to him, David, they're bringing out light tubes. And he said, uh, what does that mean? And I said, I think it means they're gonna try to hit you with light tubes. And then he said, what should I do? And I, I felt like this should have been self-evident, but I said to him, I think you should try not to get hit with light tubes. <laughs> and like, to the guy's credit, like, he had this like, oh God, I'm in way over my head face going. Um, that was exactly what he should have had at that moment. Like he was definitely telling the story of the guy who like bit off way the fuck more than he could chew. Um, His acting was excellent. It was great. It looked like all that really hurt. Yeah, no, it didn't look fun from where I was sitting either. Um, but yeah, that's my favorite thing about going to live wrestling shows is those little moments of interaction. You know, I've, I've told you this before, but uh one of my favorite books uh, is this book about post-punk called Rip It Up and Start Again. And it's all about just like all the different post-punk scenes. There's a whole chapter about like Devo hanging out in Ohio with Per Ubu and shit. Um, but one of the, the chapters, I think it's about like Vincent Gallo's old band. Um, but the thing that stuck with me was they, they, uh, they said uh, that they always tried to turn a show into a situation. Um, 
because a show wait Vin- vincent gallo the director yeah okay good yeah just wanted to make sure we were on the same page yeah there. yeah the the yeah the we all know the brown bunny guy okay yes <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah um but yeah like uh because he said you know a show is something you passively consume you just take it in and then you you it's a product a situation is something you have to react to and you have to make decisions about a situation and so that's what i love about live pro wrestling in the indie world when because like shows become situations really fast like i remember being in the legion hall for uh my first guerrilla warfare match at pwg and i think you were there and we were with our, our buddy eric barnes and uh the 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 announcer got in the ring he said the following match is a guerrilla warfare match and everybody around us stood up and folded up their chairs and so we looked around and we did the same and i remember asking barnes like so is there like a protocol for this like what do we do and he just said get the fuck out of the way (laughs) and i was like cool um and yeah is that the one that was the guerrilla warfare match that uh we saw super dragon's last match uh yeah yeah the one where he limped to the back because he fucked up his leg and then we never saw him again yeah no he just he he uh he went back to his home planet um backstage at the legion hall my my favorite memory from that match is uh speedball mike bailey uh like powdering to the outside and just like laying in a heap at my feet like literally at my feet and i'm shouting like because you know i'm I'm kayfabe brother uh i uh i'm shouting like you gotta get up speedball you gotta get up you gotta get up and i reach out my hand to help him he grabs my hand and we start i start trying to pull him up and he like is selling like he's trying to get up and then he lets go and falls back down and it was the coolest thing fucking ever um poor little speedball he didn't have the he didn't have the fighting spirit in that moment he had he had just gotten his his shit rocked real real bad rest in peace speedball by the way not he's not dead he's just not wrestling in the united states for the last oh no he's yeah he, he got engaged to veda scott he, they're doing great um but why why can't i see him wrestle when, when is his uh time out over he's been all over like germany and wxw and uh, i think he did some dragon gate at one point um but yeah like if you go online there's there's plenty of dirty little feet for your amusement but he can't come to me anymore i have to travel to him I mean, with thanks to the magic of the internet, you can you can travel like twelve feet and you're there. Yeah, but like no, he he's uh, I guess he's like got a year or two more. Um, but yeah, he's still stuck up in Canada, which like, dude, it's COVID. Like, you know, um, you're not missing too too much. But yeah, he's uh he's he he just got engaged to Veda Scott, who's uh who works over at AEW, um, doing stuff over there. I think she she does commentary on Dark every now and then. And then she did commentary on the women's tag team tournament that they had, which, man, I wish they had done more with that women's tag team tournament. That was a cool idea that, like, kind of fizzled out like a little bit of a wet fart. Um, that is always bringing up the women's division with AEW is always going to be their their weakest spot. By a and lot. And that is such, it's such a bummer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, some of it's their fault and some of it isn't. Like, COVID didn't help because, like, their women's division was clearly going to be built 50-50 around Joshi, which, like, I'm fucking here for. Like, that sounds awesome. Like, Riho rules. Uh, 
you know, uh, Emi Sakura is the coolest. Like, I, I've been really, really getting into that stuff. Um, and then they lost all those parts of their roster because they couldn't come over anymore. And then they started getting all those injuries. Like, Chris Statlander went out, Shanna went out, and now she's back. And they basically, like, lost everybody they had been building except Britt Baker. And Britt Baker, I think, has improved a ton. Like, I'm going to be honest, she didn't really impress me at the very beginning of AEW, but I think she's gotten a lot better. Um, and I, I quite enjoy her matches now. Um, I think she just was pretty green for the position they put her in um, and has grown into it. Um, and now, like, they're figuring it out. Like, they got, you know, Hikaru Shida's got an interesting program going with Abaddon where, like, Shida's getting to be a little bit more of a character than she has before. Um, like, Shida's good in the ring. They just haven't really given her much of anything to do except, like, oh, hey, Nyla Rose, I guess I'll fight you. Like, that's kind of been the feud. Well, that's what... I saw something about how much screen time she's received over the last year, and it was in comparison to Cody's entrances. Hikaru Shida, Cody... like, total? <laughs> oh, yeah. Her total ring time is far lower than what Cody's total entrance time is. That's extremely bad. Um, like, there's there's no amount of injuries that can excuse that. Like... I mean, you hear that they're going to, you know, bring on another show and everything. And I, I would love to see a show that's like 75, 25 women um, for their other show. Like, give that division room to shine. And thanks to certain recent developments, they have access to maybe the best women's division in wrestling now in the form of Impact. That is true. But did you... Okay, I know you don't really follow any WWE anymore. But are you at all familiar with what's happening at War Games? Um, I know uh, that it's Team Shotzi Blackheart versus Team People Who Aren't Shotzi Blackheart. And there's also like one mystery. Team Candace. Wait, really? It's Team Shotzi versus Team Candace. And Le Candace LeRae's team is Candace, Dakota Kai, uh, Raquel Gonzalez, which I'm not familiar with, and Tony Storm. That's, that's, that's pretty dope. Um, yeah, I mean, the... I uh, I am an avowed non WWE person. I uh, I think main roster WWE is is uh, the the word's bad. It's bad television. It's poorly written. Um, the roster's good. Like I want to be super clear, just for everybody who's not familiar with uh, Veron's House of Opinions. Um, I think the roster's really good. I think they're unbelievably talented wrestlers, but I think the booking is awful. I think uh, main roster WWE in particular doesn't care about its past in a way that really bothers me. Um, like for years, people just get kind of thrown into programs because they're happening. And like by contrast over in AEW, I think one of the smart things about AEW is they will set up these character conflicts and just let them simmer. Like you've got at any moment, they could pull the trigger on another Kingston Moxley program a uh you know program between like the young bucks and best friends they could do hangman omega yeah hangman omega uh they could go back to cody darby um they you know on and on and on um you've got fucking brand they're building a story about brandon cutler getting wins like they could go back to cutler and avalon if they wanted to like they have all these opportunities and the cool thing about all those stories is like they don't have to do them all now um they just have them simmering like one of my favorite things i think the thing one of the things that's most emblematic of the difference between AEW and wwe in terms of how they approach booking was uh two weeks ago 
you know how Moxley got attacked right before the contract signing for the the Omega match? Yeah. Um, and the week after, like he's been on the warpath, uh, super pissed off. And Kingston was giving an interview uh, about like him and the Lucha Bros and like the Death Triangle program that's been going on, which is like a totally separate storyline that Kingston moved on into. And then at the end, Moxley just walked up and like fucking squared up against him. And then Kingston said, you know, it wasn't me. I have my own shit to deal with. And then he walked away. And like, it's very simple. Like that's, that it shouldn't be hard to just acknowledge that these people are all in the same building, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, oh yeah, these people didn't stop feeling away about each other because they had the match. Like, of course Moxley would think that the guy who just tormented him for months attacked him. And of course Eddie Kingston would say, no, no, I'm doing my thing. And like, that's very, very small, but like, it makes the whole world feel lived in in a way that WWE doesn't feel lived in as a world. Um, all that said, uh, WWE has the best women's roster probably um, in the world uh, in terms of the talent. And honestly, I hate to say it, but in terms of the booking, at least on NXT, um, it's the best. Uh, I wish that weren't true because all of those women are eventually going to get fed into the meat grinder that is uh, the the WWE main roster. Though that is kind of one of the good things about NXT being on USA now is like people just kind of hang out in NXT. And like one of the reasons I stopped watching NXT was because I felt like it kind of took place in the Logan's Run universe where like eventually like the gym on their hand was going to start glowing and they were going to have to go get processed into food for Brock Lesnar. Um, you know? But now you can just like stay there and be safe um, unless you're Keith Lee, um, which like, sorry, Keith, um, that makes me real sad. He was destined for the main roster. No, he, he is Vince's favorite kind of wrestler, which is big guy, what moves like a small guy. Um, and Vince loves those. But um, anyway, all of that is to say, uh, who do you think the mystery person on Team Shotzi is going to be? I thought we had everybody listed already. Uh, the last thing I saw was that there was one mystery person. Um, let me see. NXT. I have pulled up that Shotzi's team is Shotzi, Ember Moon, Rhea Ripley, and Io Shirai. I'm, I'm definitely tuning into that. I mean, there was a time in my life when Candice LeRae was my favorite wrestler in the world. And I really miss those days, John. I miss those days dearly. Oh, I miss them so much, especially because the memory of those days have been tainted by a certain uh, diddly pervert um, who honestly, <laughs> we probably all should have seen that coming. But yeah, no, Candace has been uniformly so, so nice. And like, uh, I, I would like to say publicly that Candace LeRae helped me become a better husband. Um, and I'll tell you the story, I'll tell you why. I remember, uh, I think it was our first PWG show you and I went to. Um, and the world's cutest tag team was there. And this was the mystery vortex where uh, Gargano fought Ciampa to begin the whole thing, where our brains exploded. Um, and you and I were sitting behind Eric Barnes and Jordan Dobbs Rosa. Um, and uh, I think Barnes, who looks like a Viking, said to us, welcome to Wrestling Valhalla. And he was right. First match of the night. First match of the night. First indie wrestling match I ever saw was Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa just kicking the front of each other's faces into the back of each other's faces. 
Um, it was absurd. That's still one of my all-time favorite matches that I've witnessed live. It was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, during intermission, you know, they were all selling merch. And I remember walking up to Candace and Joey and saying to Candace, like, oh, man, you were so cool. It was really, really awesome. And Candace is gregarious as hell and super down to chat. And then I remember, like, by contrast, Johnny Gargano is sitting next to her with his, like, DVDs and his T-shirts. And he's kind of quiet. And, like, I definitely got the vibe that he was sort of a more introverted dude. Not a bad guy, just, like, kind of a little bit more shy. And I was, you know gushing to Candace about how cool she is. And then she turned and said, you know, Johnny, you know, has a bunch of merch and everything. And he was super awesome. And like, I remember her shining, taking the spotlight I had placed on her and shining it on her partner. And I took that as a big lesson. And I thought that was really cool of her. And I was like, yeah, like when you are the more chatty, um, because you guys on this podcast have probably noticed, I like to talk. Um, but like when you're the more chatty person in a relationship, you need to use that to shine a light on your partner sometimes too. Um, and I thought that was cool of her and I took that lesson and I am a better husband because of Candace LeRae. So are you gonna tune in to watch Team Candace beat Team Shotzi on no, more games? No, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Not even illegally? No, no, I'm not going to, especially not illegally. Uh, no, I, I I mean, you know, I hope they have a good match. I only got so much time and there's a lot of wrestling, dude. Um, like, I'm lucky if I watch a Dynamite. I'm, I'm still behind on G1 matches, dog. Hey, I can't even watch a New Japan anymore. They locked me out of my account. And do you know how hard it is to go back and forth with the customer service in Japan? Why did they lock you out of your account? Did you like pirate New Japan or something? I have not shared my account. I have done nothing wrong. And I, I yeah, I feel like they don't want me to see Alex Zane versus Blake Christian tonight. Uh, do you like, just make a new email address or something, dude. No, 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 no. I have my login. It should work. No, that's just don't don't be an asshole. You just make a new email. It's fine. You don't have another email address. Just use another one. Everybody, you don't have an email address that's just for customer service stuff. Like I have a Yahoo email address. It's all I use it for. It's like a cesspool of spam in there. Um, it's just constant. I get I get like sixty emails a day in there. It's all like customer service offers. Every time I like unsubscribe, like two more emails spring up in its place, like some sort of hydra of uh, trying to sell me like fucking pans. Um, see, that's my regular email. I think right now I, my regular email would probably stress you out. A lot of things about me stress me out. 53,190 unread emails. I want you to know that I just restrained myself from hanging up on you. Um, that's how I feel about that. Uh, what you're doing to your phone is a hate crime. Um, you should feel bad about this. Like, what you need to do is, I'm giving you permission, clean slate, buddy. You need to go into your email account and you just need to click a little button that says mark all red. And that's your clean slate. Like, give yourself permission to start over. It's a new Garrett and a new relationship with his email. Can I do the same through text? Um, I think so, yeah, you can do it on your phone. Just mark them all as red. 
I currently have 67 missed text messages. I'm the worst texter. I just, I hate using it. And I feel like what this podcast could become is I could be like uh, Mark Marin and just bring all my friends on and apologize to them. <laughs> no, I know. You're really, really bad at texting. I, I go weeks at a time and I'm like, maybe he died. <laughs> um, like, you know, and then I find and then I see a new episode of the podcast drop and I'm like, OK, he's alive. Cool. Um, like that's this. This is how mostly I know that you're extant. Um, is the podcast continues to come out, which is why I need you to keep doing it in this brave uh, post-Derek world. I know, I know. If I don't keep doing this, everybody's going to assume I'm dead. And all I can do to show people that I'm alive is occasionally uh, Instagram story, a picture of my cat, something like that. I do like those. Those are fun. Um, They're you know, cute. Yeah, your cat's real cute. Your cat was pawing at the doorknob earlier behind you, and it was really, really delightful. Yeah, I'm a little tired because I had to watch the uh, the new season of Big Mouth last night, and then I stayed up until three in the morning watching Bruce Springsteen videos from the '70s because I am uh, I am also in a sense a dad, um, but in a very different sense from Derek. What are you a father to? Um, no, I just have like the attitude of a dad in that like I now you know stay up all night watching Bruce Springsteen videos from the '70s, and I'm like, man, he's right. Glory days will pass you by. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought Nibbler was keeping you up and is just like, no, we're not going to bed until we've watched two hours of Springsteen. <laughs> he really does like Dancing in the Dark quite a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's like my little Courtney Cox is what he is. Well, I I go to bed. I'm an old man now. I go to bed at like 830 and wake up at like six. That's just the quarantine life is fucked up yeah man you went the other way like everybody else you know i know became night owls but you uh you you like do you just like like watching the sun come up when it's like all quiet and peaceful is that it i wish that were it i wish that were it i have nothing i have nothing john i wake up at six in the morning and i have nothing and you, except for this morning you gave me some homework and I got to tune into the I got to tune into some all Japan like it was Saturday morning cartoons. Oh man, and it is not cartoonish at all. <laughs> um, it is perhaps the least cartoonish wrestling you could have watched on a Saturday morning. I'm sorry if I had known when you were gonna watch it, I would have given some given you like Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling Connection or something. Yeah, it was really I thought what you sent me was good, but it was missing Doink. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I could have sent you uh, an Akira Tawe match. Um, that's a very, very niche joke. Um, uh, so yeah, um, tell. So I, I sent uh, you uh, some All Japan Four Pillars stuff. Um, mainly, uh, I, one of the things that I've discovered over quarantine is a wrestler by the name of Kenta Kobashi, who I would argue is the main character of pro wrestling. Like, if, if pro wrestling is a comic book, and it's in a comic book universe, like, the DC Comics universe, you could make a solid argument that Superman is the main character of the DC Comics universe. Like, things kind of revolve around him. Like, Batman will go have a story, Green Lantern will go have a story, but, like, it kind of comes back to, like, Superman as the prime mover. I think that's Kenta Kobashi. A lot of people would pick a different guy from All Japan. Um, are you familiar with the Four Pillars of Heaven? Uh, no, not until you introduced me to this, this series. series. Wow. So you this didn't YouTube know series. anything about the Four Pillars or 90s All Japan or anything like that? No, well, other than I have, 
at the beginning of the podcast, somebody had us watch uh, Misawa versus Kawada. Okay, okay. Like several of their matches. So I got to watch a lot of uh, Misawa bombs and the Kawada, like little kicks to the face. Oh, he likes kicking people in the face. Yeah, that's that's his move. Those are cute. <laughs> they are cute little kicks. <laughs> um, they don't look fun. Um, I would not like to be kicked by uh, the man they call Dangerous K. Um, so... Uh, I guess for context, uh, and stop me if you already know this stuff, maybe uh, for your listeners. Um, in the 80s, a gigantic stop-motion skeleton with skin draped over him named Giant Baba was booking um, a promotion called All Japan Pro Wrestling. And he uh, was a brilliant booker. He was a wrestler beforehand. Um and uh, he eventually moved out of in-ring work and was booking uh, All Japan around uh, his ace, a guy named Jumbo Saruta, who you've probably heard of. Um, Great name. Yeah, he, he was awesome. Um, and he uh, innovated uh, a style of wrestling known as King's Road style, which like, if you like main event New Japan Pro Wrestling, you owe King's Road a lot. Like the 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 Okada Omega matches are King's Road mixed with uh like modern light heavyweight style wrestling kind of in the way that like Omega likes to move and like the grace of it and the the more somewhat more choreographed nature of the work. Not to put it put it down, like the Omega Okada series is amazing. But basically um jumbo saruta wrestling fans can find a way to complain about anything oh absolutely um it's yeah i i don't know why we watch this we clearly hate it (laughs) (laughs) we could go do something we like instead um but basically um jumbo saruta in the late 80s was aging out and the uh aging out of the main event scene and the product which had heretofore been booked as basically like jumbo versus evil gaijin Mainly Stan Hansen and Terry uh, and Terry Gordy, um, Terry Gordy, who would go on to form a tag team with Doctor Death, Steve Williams, with the best name not just that a tag team has ever had, but the best name anything has ever had, the Miracle Violence Connection. Like, ooh, Garrett, why did we keep naming stuff? We gave something the best name. Like, why isn't that the top selling shirt on Pro Wrestling Tees this week? I don't know, but uh, you can get a really cool pink shirt that's the two of them and it says Miracle Violence Connection. Um, yeah, it's real, real awesome. But anyway, uh, and then Stan Hansen, who uh, I did not, when I got into Stan Hansen, I started realizing that Stone Cold Steve Austin probably owes him money. Um, like, he is a shit kicker from Texas who comes out in a black vest with a skull and crossbones on it. And he did it in like 1988. Like this should all sound very familiar to you. Um, his finisher was the lariat, um, which like, if you think Bradshaw's clothesline from hell looked brutal, like go watch some. Have you ever seen a Stan Hansen lariat? I have. Yeah. So you, did you uh, did you know that Stan Hansen was legally blind? <laughs> <laughs> that actually makes a lot make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, someone online uh, at one point pointed that out and said, like, basically, Stan Hansen was throwing lariats at whatever he thought your face was, and it was your job to figure out how to not die. If you just showed him to me now in the middle of a current roster of wrestlers, that he, he would stand out. I mean, he looks like a trucker. Yeah, he, he definitely looks like a trucker. He looks like he's got that Kevin Owens thing of like, oh, I bet he beats people up. 
Like, but not in like a, not in like a Ivan Drago, I'm an athlete way in like a, Hey, this dude owes me money. Go break his knees kind of way. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's his selling point. Um, and Stan Hansen's amazing. But anyway, Baba knew that he needed to make new stars and he had, uh, a guy, he had a, a number of people that he kind of had this in mind for. And one of them was a uh, guy who was currently wrestling at the time as Tiger Mask. He was the second Tiger Mask, Tiger Mask 2. And Tiger Mask, uh, one day in I think 1988, 89, was in a tag match. It was Tiger Mask and uh, Toshiaki Kawada against uh, two other wrestlers. I forget who it was. I think it might have been Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. But... Uh, Tiger Mask gets super pissed off and then he turns around and points to the laces on his mask and he's like, Kawada, undo my mask. And he unmasks in the middle of the match. And it is Mitsuharu Misawa. And this is the debut of Mitsuharu Misawa. He's like, fuck it, I'm not Tiger Mask anymore. I am Mitsuharu Misawa. I'm going to elbow you into the sky. Um, because, and I hope you got this from the videos I sent you, Misawa's elbow is God. That's literally what they say. Um, I am not making so this So when up. Kota Ibushi is going to be God, he's going to be Misawa's elbow. Yes, he is. So they started building the company around this generational conflict between Saruta and Misawa. Um, Misawa started a group called the Super Generation Army, which consisted primarily of Misawa Kawada, who was a year behind him in training. Like Kawada and Misawa went to high school together. Like they were friends since they were kids. Um, and a young up-and-comer named Kenta Kobashi. He was booked like anybody who was going to one day be the face of the company. He lost his first 63 matches. So he had a similar beginning run to Brandon Cutler in AEW. Yeah, very similar. Um, in that he, he got closer and closer every time uh, to winning and won the crowd's sympathy that way. And that's sort of one of the hallmarks of King's Road style is like there's the long-term booking and there's also... The fact that like moves matter more in King's Road style, like any move could be a match ender. People don't, like one of the things about Western style wrestling now, especially like WWE style is like, it's kind of all just like waiting for someone to hit their finisher. Um, which like is fun because finishers are cool. Like I love a finisher. Um, but also like that kind of means that you can only have one kind of match a lot of the time, um, you know, like, Omega's got to work the neck and shoulders to set people up for the one winged angel. Um, you know, Moxley's going to brawl until he can hit you with the paradigm shift or whatever. Um, but like in King's Road style, Masawa can just hit you with an elbow and you're done. Um, but he also can hit you with uh, his finisher, uh, the Tiger Driver. But if he hits it at the beginning of a match, it, you're not, he knows he won't beat you that way. Did he also have the finisher that's just dropping you on your head? You're going to have to be more specific with All Japan. Um, okay, yeah, let me... Didn't... I can't remember if it was... I thought it was Misawa that it was called the Misawa Bomb. And it was just a power bomb onto the head, basically. No, he... Uh, well, Saruta used to hit a folding power bomb where he'd power bomb you onto, like, your shoulders. You'd kind of take a high bump. And then he'd fold you up and pin you that way. No, uh, Misawa hit... Uh, you know how... Um, Kenny Omega will often hit Tiger Driver 98. You've heard Excalibur call that on AEW. Yeah. So Misawa had the Tiger Driver um, and the Tiger Suplex. That was his kind of set of moves, uh, the double underhooks, suplexes, and power bombs. 
the Tiger Driver was just a double underhook powerbomb. That was his like first big finisher. And then he debuted in 1991, Tiger Driver 91, which was basically that, but he just didn't finish the move and dropped you on your head. <laughs> um, that's the move that finishes the 1995 Kobashi Masawa match I sent you. Um, yes. The, the Tiger Driver 91. And then in 1998, he debuted Tiger Driver 98. And then later, he debuted the Emerald Flosion, which you've seen people hit Emerald Flosions before. That was also a Masawa move. Um, Masawa's thing was innovative suplexes and like wrestling acumen. Kobashi's thing was uh, strength, explosiveness, and being too stupid to give up. Um, because as I said before we started recording, Masawa, or uh, not Masawa, Kobashi kind of always looks like he's really surprised he's in a wrestling match. Like, he's just constantly astonished that he's he's here. He looks like, you know, those sitcoms from the 90s where, like, Carl Winslow and Urkel would have to figure out how to fight the Bushwhackers. Um, <laughs> he, he looks like that, except he's also very surprised to be this good at wrestling. Um, I love him. Like, his facial expressions and his selling are what sets him apart from everybody else. Like, he's got a a, a baby face's face. Um, so they booked him. He has the head of a Ken doll. <laughs> he does. Um, he just has the Ken doll head on this beef man body. Yeah, I think I texted you last night that he looks like Japanese Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a beautiful head of hair. It's gorgeous. Like, seriously. So what did you think of the 1995 match? Let's start there. So tuning into this, my initial reaction to watching this type of wrestling is it always feels like I'm being forced to eat my wrestling vegetables. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> and it it feels like that for a while into the match until they just start fucking wailing on each other. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a big fan of, I couldn't get enough of the karate chops to the neck. Oh, dude, those chops. There are uh, great videos towards the end of Kobashi's career um, where, like, people would pay a fee before shows and stand in line just to get chopped in the chest by him. Like, that was a real, real big thing for a long, long time in Japan. Um, but, yeah, those karate chops hitting the, the rapid-fire machine gun ones where he just, like, chopped the shit out of your neck and then hit one big one. Uh, they're awesome. So I've actually got the match on right now. I've got it off to the side playing. Yeah. Just so I can take a look at these two beefcakes yeah i mean masawa less beefcakey but uh more like that's what a wrestler looks like like masawa i hope you don't mind me saying not a pretty man um but a man who well especially in comparison yeah in comparison to the most beautiful man ever produced by the by the country of japan <laughs> sorry koto abushi kentikobashi's prettier than you um Though they, I'm sorry, Mr. Baba. I don't see a man that handsome losing pro wrestling. <laughs> but the, the the story of this match was uh, like Kobashi could never win the big one. And that's why I sent you two Masawa Kobashi matches. Um, this and the one in 2003. But this was uh, him facing for the Triple Crown title. The Triple Crown was the title in, and is the title in all Japan. Basically, in the 80s, they unified these three other belts, and that just became the title. And they never made one belt. So, like, when you win the title in All Japan, you get three belts. Um, that's just how it is. Um, and it's called the Triple Crown. But, it's yeah. a bitch at the airport. Dude, I know. Um, but, like, 
the thing about this match is like you can the, or the thing about King's Road in, in particular is you can always tell who's up and who's down in a match very easily like and you understand why like like I said moves matter so like you know if if Masawa hits a tiger driver early in the match you know that's not going to end the match but it's going to give him control and be a difference maker you know what I mean um so that like the uh like for example before this match ends you know uh you see a ton of like Kobashi fighting spirit where he's fighting for underneath from underneath for huge stretches of the match basically like Kinta Kobashi kind of is Sami Zayn in NXT like Sami Zayn in NXT's run was booked very similarly to Kinta Kobashi in all Japan where he just kind of couldn't win the big one until he finally did and then there was a huge pop like it's pretty basic storytelling it's just very compelling when you do it and it takes years to pay off um and Giant Baba knew that he had years um but like in this match, for example, there's a moment towards the end where Kobashi takes an elbow from Masawa to the back of the head. That's when the match ends. Everything else is just Kobashi not accepting reality. Um, until eventually he gets put down with the Tiger Driver 91. And that's a huge part of like the other big thing about King's Road style, in addition to the long-term booking, is this idea of fighting spirit. And we have this idea in modern as modern wrestling fans that fighting spirit just means no selling like we've all seen the match and it's cool like i'm not putting down this thing that happens where like a dude will hit a huge move and then the other guy will just roll back and like get up and scream and then hit his big move and they'll both fall down yeah yeah we love that like it's the best yeah and it, it gets me so excited yeah and it's part of fighting spirit but it's not all of fighting spirit fighting spirit and this is how kenta gobashi got so over with the fans was this was how a lot of his matches would end is he'd take a huge finisher and then he'd like kick out four more times and then lose and they just loved that his this guy just would not stay down and that's what happens in this match where he takes the elbow he won't stay down and he's like he's he's got spaghetti legs from that point in the match on um and it's very clear that he's going to lose this match um if you think about it for even a second and then he finally takes the tiger driver 91 and stays down so um, that's my gushing about it. Like what was, I know it felt like eating your wrestling vegetables, but by the end, what was your, what was your read on this match? Like, did you find the story easy to follow in the same way? Yeah. And I think going into it though, I was so, I, I'm just going to keep going back to how handsome Kobayashi or Kobashi is. I get it. I get it. He's breathtaking. <laughs> when you get to this match, and you just look at the man, you're like, well, this guy is going to win this match. Yeah. He's too handsome. He's my action hero. This other guy is just some schlub, which is not nice to say because he, he's terrifying. Yeah. No, he's 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 a monster man, and he, and he, and he has God living in his elbow. <laughs> but at the same time, you had already told me the thing where he hadn't won a match in a year or at the beginning of his career. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, he is the underdog. And honestly, what I started, because you sent me two matches 10 years apart, my wife and I had just watched Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. Okay. This is, this is like that for wrestling. Um, it is like, <laughs> it, it really is. My wife sat out there with me again while I was watching both of these. And when I told him like, oh, this is 10 years apart, just like Before Sunrise. <laughs> before sunset. She's like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Is there a third one? Do they do they have a long car ride where they don't get along? 
There are a bunch of matches in between these two. I just sent you this one and the one in 2003. Um, because the one in 2003 is the one where that's the first time Kobashi beat Masawa for the title. Like, Kobashi could beat Masawa, but he it's very Sami Zayn. He couldn't win the big one against Masawa. Um, if Masawa had the belt and Kobashi was coming after him, he always lost. Um, and he got closer and closer every time until finally in 2008, uh, 2003, in a different promotion. Because um, basically what happened in the late 90s was um, Masawa started getting frustrated with how Giant Baba was booking. Um, he was starting to move on to a new generation. Uh, he brought in guys like Jun Akiyama. Um, because I skipped a whole thing, but basically the way the 90s worked in All Japan was there were these four wrestlers and they called themselves, or they were called the Four Pillars of Heaven. Uh, it was Akira Tawe, Toshiaki Kawada, Masawa, and Kobashi. And it was a lot like, remember the SmackDown 6 in the 2000s? Yeah. It was very similar in that, like, Baba knew he had four of the best wrestlers on the planet, and he could just sort of shuffle them around into programs and make great things happen. Um, also, speaking of great tag team names, Kawada and Akira Tawe formed a uh, tag team at this point. They betrayed Masawa... Um, or Kawada betrayed Masawa and left Super Generation Army, the organization I told you he was in, and formed a new tag team with Akira Tawe called the Holy Demon Army. <laughs> Everything in Japan has a cooler name. <laughs> um, um, and it was in a tag when uh, Kobashi and Masawa, because Kobashi and Masawa tagged together all the time. Like, they were uh, stablemates in Super Generation Army, and it was them versus... Uh, the Holy Demon Army that was like the big feud in J in all Japan in the 90s to the point where a lot of people say there's one tag match uh, between Kobashi Masawa versus the Holy Demon Army that uh, a lot of people say is the best tag match of all time. And to go back to Kobashi's fighting spirit, uh, people would always attack Kobashi's knee um, because you probably noticed it's taped up to hell. And like he had a history, he had a legit history of knee injuries. Um and he gets his knee just blown the fuck out in this tag match. And at some point, he knows he can't fight anymore. So he just starts falling over Masawa while Masawa's being attacked and being a human shield for him. Because that's all he can contribute to the match. But he keeps doing it. And it's, it's amazing. It's heartbreaking. I, I'm about to shed a tear. I know. It's beautiful. Um... And it's like, this it's is all telling. I know this is all I have left. This is what I can give you. I can give you my literal body, my giant, beefy, handsome body. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, then in uh, 1998, they uh, beat the uh, the Holy Demon Army when uh, Kenta Kobashi debuts. I think this might be the first like super finisher, the Burning Hammer. And you know about the Burning Hammer, right? I don't know if I do. You've never heard of the Burning Hammer? Oh, man. Um, so the Burning Hammer was Kobashi's super finisher. Kobashi would finish you. He had those leg drops, which are fucking nasty. Um, he had those. Uh, he had the Lariato, um, which was his big lariat that he would hit. Um, he had the Moonsault, um, which I, I fucking love those. Uh, I fucking love the giant Moonsault. Like... He, he had this way of non-verbally communicating with the crowd where if he hit a scoop slam and then did this with his fist, you knew he was going up for the moonsault. Um, and I forget if Which it's... Which is a beautiful, perfect moonsault. It's gorgeous. Um, 
and, and like the flop that it makes when their bodies collide is just yeah and it's also it's another thing about this style that like moves are often messy on purpose because it's a fight like there's a moment in the 1995 match where he hits the moonsault gets a two and goes back up and then hits a moonsault on Masawa while Masawa's on all fours trying to get back up and just pancakes him and like it doesn't look like a moonsault should look because they're in a fight like and fights are fucking messy you know um and i love that like it looks so so gnarly um but anyway he had all those ways to finish you but in 1998 he knew he needed a new thing so he invented a new move called the burning hammer and the burning hammer is basically he gets you up in a torture rack like it's a reverse fireman's carry so you're you're back you're you're facing up and then he just drops you on your head um oh yeah it's how it, it's the end of the 2003 match uh it also brian kendrick did it to koto abushi during the cruiserweight classic and it got a huge pop especially when koto abushi kicked out of it because no one kicks out of the burning hammer um kenta kobashi did the burning hammer seven times in his whole career um, no one ever kicked out of it like that's how powerful the burning hammer is also it's called the fucking burning hammer like yeah it's scary it's scary that should defeat you that should spray your brains all over the canvas to where you cannot continue yeah um so fast forward to the late 90s um and thank you for letting me just go on about this i i hope i hope this is the content your audience craves you're very passionate about it we want to hear about what you're you've been geeking out on over quarantine and you're it's you're been this with it it's been 90s All Japan and early 2000 Noah um, wall to wall over here. Um, but like, so speaking of Noah, um, so Baba's starting to bring up a new generation towards the late 90s. And Masawa's like, fuck you, man. I got plenty left in the tank. Um, I'm going to go start a new promotion and I'm going to take a bunch of my buddies with me. So Masawa starts pro wrestling Noah, which is basically the other huge promotion. And he decides he's going to bring Kenta Kobashi on as his ace. Um, and so Kobashi and Masawa leave All Japan and All Japan was kind of never the same. I mean, All Japan's still around, like you can still watch it. Uh, and it's, from what I've heard, it's really good right now. Um, but Wait, yeah. it is currently running. Yeah. Yeah. It's where do I have, where do I even go to watch that? I have no idea. Um, but I know it exists. I think they might have a streaming service, uh, but it's still around. Like the triple crown championship is still being defended to this day. Well, that's beautiful, man. What was the, the leading thing that just kind of brought all of this into your life? So I had heard of like uh, the four pillars of heaven. Um, and I'm friends with wrestling nerds uh, who basically kept saying like, if you like Japanese wrestling, this is the foundational text. Like if you want to understand how Japanese wrestling works, you have to watch these four guys uh, and understand the context around them. And then... I got turned on to by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Captain Jack Hartless, um, turned me on to a great YouTube series called Walking the King's Road that I sent over to you. And if anybody listening wants to learn more about All Japan, I strongly recommend it. They recommend matches to you. It's still going. They haven't gotten up to the matches I'm discussing now, but a lot of the context I'm offering is from that series. So tip of the hat to Walking the King's Road. I am standing on the shoulders of... Uh, a giant who I think might be either German or Swedish, judging by his accent on the series. So thank you, uh, you mysterious German Swede. 
It really plays like a history lesson. Yeah, and it's awesome. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. And it's the thing that taught me that Masawa's elbow is God. Um, he makes that point every episode uh, that Masawa's elbow is God. And like in the match, like you saw it, like, because normally like an elbow strike, you know, throwing a forearm doesn't look like that big of a deal. But like when Masawa hits you with a standing elbow strike, you fall down. And you don't oh, get yeah. it. Yeah, like, that's it. <laughs> um, and if you're listening to this and think, what, you mean his finisher's the Judas effect? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. This looks devastating. <laughs> yeah, no. The Judas effect looks like when you try to grab a, uh, a woman named Karen's purse in the mall, and she's like, I don't know you. Um <laughs> And this this elbow is more like I want to make sure whoever's behind me has to drink through a straw for the rest of their life. <laughs> and he does it so many ways. Sometimes it's just a standing like elbow. Sometimes it's a back elbow. Sometimes he does it off the top rope. Um, like it's and not like dropping an elbow Randy Savage style, like a top rope elbow to the face of a standing opponent. Um, sometimes he does it as a tope suicida. Like he just has a lot of ways to make his elbow touch your face with a lot of velocity behind it. What? So does he do it like a coffin drop, but with the elbow? Um, yeah, uh, basically. Uh, I think he actually may have done that in the 2003 match. He does, yeah. Um, so to talk about the 2003 match, um, so Kobashi is being booked as the ace of Noah, but he's he's got that bad knee. So he has to leave for knee surgery um, in like 2000. Um, and they're like, how is he gonna come back and be what he was before? He comes back, he's no longer wearing the orange trunks. The orange trunks, one of the cool things about uh, the All Japan guys is they all basically had this uniform. Like Masawa always wears the green. Um, Kobashi always wears the orange. Uh, he was called Orange Crush for that reason. Um, Tawe always wears red and Kawada always wears the uh, black and yellow um, because those are the colors that let you know not to get too close to a hornet because the hornet will sting you and Kawada will kick <laughs> your face off. Um, those Kawada kicks, man. Tiny feisty man. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so Kobashi comes back and he starts coming for Misawa's title. And Misawa has the, the what was called the GHC title. And I don't know what that stands for, but it was the main title in Noah. And they build to this match. And the question again is, can Kobashi beat Masawa for the big one? And then they have this match that a lot of people think is the best match ever. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't even know if that term means anything once you get past a certain echelon of quality. What did you think of this match? I will remember this match for the rest of my life for one reason only it's the reason a lot of people remember this match <laughs> because it contains what might be the worst bump i've ever seen it was disgusting i they were teasing like it was gonna happen but then it fucking happens yeah yeah it is so is masawa is the one that delivers that yeah to kobashi. kobashi yeah the tiger suplex yeah he gives him a tiger suplex from the entrance ramp to the floor yeah uh, onto just two double underhooked arms going backwards, having no idea where you're going. And just like, you're going to hit your head on what looks like a pretty cheap gymnastics mat. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. And then somehow he gets up from that. And I love him rolling him back into the ring 
to go for the cover and then the pop that that fucking kick out gets when when kobashi kicks out of that like everybody's just freaking out um it's nuts um, the only move recently that i can even compare that to is at the uh, nick gage invitational uh shane mercer was fighting you sure lucky do have Thir- a brand don't you <laughs> yeah yeah shane mercer was fighting lucky 13 and at one point in that match he gives him the razor's edge from inside the ring through a table covered in barbed wire to the ground holy hell yeah that's that's rough uh and once again gets up like it never happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, that's the cool thing about this, though, and the reason I'm I'm in love with this style of wrestling is like it very clearly does matter. Like it's a lot like it 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 did happen. Um, and what we see a lot in modern wrestling is those big moves, and then basically the two uh, workers sort of resetting. But in this, like, like I said in the 1995 match, like when Masawa hits that elbow, it's pretty much over. Um, and then it's just a matter of like Masawa going, okay, like how much do I have to do to this guy to get him to stay down? But he is no longer a threat. And it's just a matter of me peppering him with moves. Um, This match gets to the same place after that tiger suplex. Like they understand that that should be an inflection point in the storytelling of the match. And so after that, you see Masawa, who's been bleeding from the mouth for quite some time now. Um, Oh, from that nasty guardrail spot. Oh yeah, when he gets garroted on the guardrail. (laughs) Um, Jesus, like you didn't even get an angle where you see his face collide with that, but you just had a feeling. Yeah, it's it's real gnarly. (laughs) Um, And uh, and again, like I I keep coming back to this, like that is also an inflection point in the match. It's not a just a bump. Because this starts with, like, basically Masawa is uh, on top the whole time, um, working Kobashi's arm to kind of try and take away his striking ability, thinking about all that sort of stuff. And then Kobasha, Kobashi, who's been fighting from underneath for the whole beginning of the match, um, makes some space with that. And that's what lets him get those big leg strikes in that put him back on top and lets him take control for a while. So, like, it's a story. And it's an easy to follow story. And like, I, I love that about it. That like, that moment should feel like it matters. And it does here. Um, and that big tiger suplex on the floor matters. Like at that point, it you see the same uh, wobbly need Kobashi we saw back in 1995 after that tiger suplex. He's got spaghetti legs again. And we're all thinking like, all right, this is the same Kobashi. Like he's going, it's just a matter of how much Masawa can hit him with um, until he goes down. But then, fucking then, um, Kobashi backdrop reverses a tiger driver and then hits that lariat, that huge goddamn lariat that looks like a side of beef with a plank attached to it sticking out of one side, just running into you. Um, It's so mean. And then he picks him up and then he hits that burning hammer and that's it. One, two, three. Kobashi has won the big one. Like, he finally does it. Um, he finds that fighting spirit to just get some offense in during that part of the match where he's spaghetti-legged. And the way it calls back to the 1995 match is, oh, God, it's so good. Like, it is, it rewards you for paying attention. I think um, one of the best things any piece of art can do is reward you for paying attention. And my the reason I'm in love with All Japan uh, Pro Wrestling and the King's Road style, because this isn't All Japan, it's Noah, 
um, and the king, but the King's Road style in general is that you get rewarded for paying attention, and you notice things. Even even going back to like stuff from the '80s, like they hit these backdrop suplexes that are a callback to um, Saruta. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Bless you. But yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Thank you for letting me gush about these matches I love. No, I'm happy you did. Because I have essentially been taking the pro wrestling equivalent of heroin for the last eight months. And you you got me to stop some heroin, take a couple vi- multivitamins. <laughs> and this isn't less brutal, I think. Like, Oh, no. The way these guys are hitting each other. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's a nightmare. Um, like that tiger suplex on the floor. I, I mean, you can show me any number of like barbed wire table bumps you want. That tiger suplex on the floor looks worse. Because um, the thing about a table is it breaks your fall. And the thing about barbed wire is it cuts you pretty shallow. The thing about the floor is it's the floor. <laughs> <laughs> the scariest weapon of them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, like fucking Mitsuharu Misawa will grab you by the arms and throw your face at the ground. <laughs> like he is terrifying. Um but yeah, uh, Kobashi went on to be the the champ for I think he had a 735 day reign with that belt. Um, it oh, is shit. to this day the longest title reign in Japanese wrestling history, to my knowledge. Um, he also, you should check out. There's an amazing match uh, you can find online in Ring of Honor in 2005 that basically made Samoa Joe, and it's Samoa Joe versus Kenta Kobashi in Ring of Honor. And it was Kobashi's first match in America. And the story goes that Kobashi wanted to work heel. Um, and he went to Samoa Joe and was like, I got to be the heel. No one here is going to know who I am. You're the big guy in this promotion. I should work heel and you should work babyface. And Samoa Joe had to explain to Kenta Kobashi that Americans had been trading tapes of him for a decade at that point plus, And that everybody was going to know who he was. And if you watch the match, when he come, when Kobashi comes through the curtain and everybody in the room is chanting, Kobashi, Kobashi, you can see on his face that he realizes they know who he is. And it's beautiful. And then they go on to have one of the most brutal goddamn matches in Ring of Honor history. Um, Masawa also worked Ring of Honor. Uh, he had a great match against Kenta in Ring of Honor. Um, Noah and Ring of Honor had a relationship in the 2000s. Um, Misawa tragically would go on to die in the ring. Um, as you knew this, right? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, Misawa died in the ring in uh, either 2009 or 2013. Um, he uh, yeah took a bump. He took just one too many really high neck bumps and uh, internally decapitated himself. Um, and that's how Misawa he died instantly. Um, I wish that the face that I'm making could be translated into an audio podcast because I've never heard those words put together before. But you know exactly what they mean, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It, you painted a picture. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he, he, it was, and supposedly like it wasn't that bump in particular, like anybody, he had taken that bump too many times and it just, the wear and tear finally got to him. Um, but before that, he was, you know, fucking Mitsuharu Misawa, um, whose elbow was some sort of deity. Um, 
But yeah, uh, if you like, if anybody listening likes wrestlers like um, Katsuyori Shibata, Kenta, um, uh, Minoru Suzuki, guys like that, like who or Tomohiro Ishii. Tomohiro Ishii is a great, great modern example of like what I would consider King's Road style, like the guy who just won't stay down. Um, if you like that, you need to go back and watch any combination just go on youtube and search any combination of the names kenta gobashi mitsuhara masawa toshiyaki kawada and to a certain extent akira tawe i hate to say this but everybody kind of agrees that akira tawe was like the ringo you know um uh, yeah he was the ringo uh his whole thing did he, was, earn, did he earn being the ringo uh he had a million different ways to choke slam you that was his thing <laughs> um i know what you're thinking okay. there's just the one no 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 sir um it turns out there are many more um and he and kawada in the holy demon army were uh a great tag team with again the second coolest name anything's ever had behind the miracle violence connection um they were just so good at naming stuff dude um the if you if you like that style of wrestling you need to go back and watch this stuff um there's also a wrestler from the 80s who made a comeback in the 2000s uh Jinichiro Tenryu who was kind of a contemporary of Jumbo Saruta. He was kind of pre Four Pillars All Japan, but then he came back in the 2000s. And if you like Minoru Suzuki and you like the idea of a cranky old man hitting people until they die, um, you need to watch yeah. some Jinichiro Tenryu. I'm gonna send you a match. It's Jinichiro Tenryu versus Kenta from I think 2005. <laughs> and it's just little bitty Kenta doing Kenta stuff, you know, running around and like hitting you. And just this 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 fridge of a human being um, getting crankier and crankier until he just rabbit punches him and he falls down. <laughs> it's great. Um, anyway, yeah, thank, uh, that's 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 what I wanted to show you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, if you like it, uh, go watch more. Um, it's it's just it's so good. Okay, I'm. Well, this makes me feel like I need to go back and show you some old Japanese death matches, get you some Onita, some barbed wire exploding ring matches. I mean, I'll watch it. I mean, I, I made you eat your wrestling vegetables, like put some heroin in my veins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My kind of wrestling, you have to heat a spoon before you watch it. <laughs> Which is funny because the heated spoon was one of their signature weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I, I, oh, when I think of Japanese death matches, I always think of the, the, uh, the story Mick Foley tells about being on the plane back from Japan after one of his death matches. Do you know this story? I don't know if I do. Um, so apparently it's in one of his books. Uh, he talks about, um, and I'm probably going to butcher the story, but the basic idea is that he was sitting in his seat and it was like hours after the death match and, um, someone starts complaining nearby um, about the smell of something burning. And then he realizes it's him. <laughs> um, like someone's like, what smells like burning hair? And he's like, oh shit, that's me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's exactly what he still smells like when you go sit on his lap as Santa Claus. Oh, that's delightful. Mick Foley is, we don't deserve Mick Foley. Um, we really don't yeah the fact that the fact that someone that scary is that nice um is is baffling to me um but yeah i i will go watch some japanese deathmatch shit 
I, 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 I am a feared, but I will do it. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. Absolutely. This was a blast. Um, I'd, I'd love to come back anytime and, uh, and, and bring more wrestling vegetables or I'll go watch some wrestling heroin and uh, you can gush over it like I gushed over this while I sit in quiet terror. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this has been a big year for Alex Cologne, and I feel like you need to know about that. Yeah, I know the name. Did was was he involved in the Bruiser Brody murder, or was this, or was it one of his relatives? I believe that was a relative. I don't think. Good. <laughs> I think he's younger than that. Gotcha, gotcha. So he is not personally responsible for the death of Bruiser Brody. Oh, by the way, I I don't know if I've ever asked you this, um, and I hope you don't mind me bringing up yet another thing when you were clearly trying to wrap up the podcast but um no. this is good wrestle content have you ever uh i know we've both we've both visited japan uh did you go to ribera steakhouse while you were there no i really i really really wanted to but that was one of the things that the my wife was just like i'm here to eat good food i don't need to eat shitty steak Okay, that was what I was going to bring up. Is the steak is not that great. <laughs> um, like, it is it is adequate steak at best. <laughs> um, supposedly, you, the reason I thought of it is supposedly uh, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody are the guys who discovered Ribera Steakhouse because they were over in Japan and Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody really wanted a steak and they were tired of eating fish and rice all the damn time and they found Ribera and made it into what it is i the locate there are two locations i apparently did not visit the original but the one i visited is just like it looks like a barbecue shack um there's like a few long tables and like stools where people sit there's a bar and the only thing on the menu is steak with corn i don't know why corn but it's corn <laughs> um and then there's beers um so and the steak is like it's like somewhere between a good steak and a Waffle House steak. I was getting ready to say, where does it compare next to an IHOP steak? <laughs> it's it's thin and wide like an IHOP steak. <laughs> um, it's not, no. Uh, I don't even know. I don't remember if they asked me how it was cooked, how I wanted it cooked. Um, I am positive that if they did, they did not follow my instructions. <laughs> <laughs> but did it? Did you taste the history? Did you taste the wrestle history? I tasted butter on the steak. <laughs> um, but one cool thing that happened was, you know, I was gushing the whole time because the place is covered in pictures of wrestlers, um, like the, the walls, the ceiling, everything. Um, my wife gave me one wrestle day uh, while we were there because uh, we were there for my birthday. So I went there. I got to see a Michinoku Pro match, the most convoluted match I've ever seen in Corican Hall. Um, which that's a story for another time. But um, the really cool thing that happened was the manager, I guess, heard me gushing and he came over and asked me, who's your favorite wrestler? And at the moment, the answer was Kazuchika Okada. Um, and he pointed out the picture of Okada wearing a Ribera Steakhouse jacket on the ceiling. And that was super cool because he just seemed... The, the difference between being a wrestling fan in Japan and a wrestling fan here is like there's very little stigma to it there. One thing I will say about the match we went to was like it was a very mixed crowd. Like we were sitting next to some like professional looking women um, who were there and they were super stoked to see it too. And like it's just a thing people like there. And the fact that this like old Japanese dude was just so stoked to share wrestling with me warmed my heart. 
did when you were at that match did you cheer and scream and stuff um i think i just sat in shocked horror it, it was a crazy crazy match um i think i cheered yeah yeah we so i went to wrestle kingdom and actually got in trouble for cheering for standing and clapping <laughs> Uh, no, we, uh, yeah, this show was not like that. It was like a, it was like a, we don't, we don't, we got there late and they gave us a discount and gave us front row seats, um, for this insane cage match. Um, which was like, honestly, I want to come back and tell you that story. Um, okay, fair. Cause fair. it's goddamn wild. <laughs> um, and the great Sasuke was there. It was awesome um and and two extremely old men um in trunks <laughs> um like just a couple it's like watching two melting candles fight <laughs> um, it was nuts god the last time i saw great sasuke fight was against joey janela at spring break too really yeah and that would have been about two three o'clock in the morning i think Great Sasuke was really trying to put himself inside of a trash can so that he could do a dive off the top rope to the floor. And it just didn't work out watching this old man try and get a trash can over his head. God bless that scarred up son of a bitch for trying, though. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been Predetermined. I am Garrett Callender. My, you know what? I, Derek did all the social media. Derek did all of that. Um, yeah, you can hit these guys up at a wrestle hangout on some platform or another. Um, <laughs> I don't remember which one you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at I better be funny and then like find me and just look up who I follow and they're in there. Do it that way. <laughs> Perfect. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Hit our goddamn music. Music.